Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Welcome to Nightlight Part 2. Hope everyone's enjoying the equinox. Uh, Dennis said America Stonehenge had a busy day. It's, yeah, day's getting uh, shorter and nights are getting longer, but yeah, we're off to a good start to the fall. Um, Barbara and I have uh, professional backgrounds in education. And she, she had a nice career as a special ed teacher, but even after 10 years of college, I'll, I doubt I'll be able to have a high school teaching job after some of these nightlight shows. You know, we the one guest with a 30-minute long meltdown after reading two of Jack's books, you know, five minutes into the show, he said, uh, don't believe anything my grandfather said. We spoke at length about a talking mongoose, who or what is the Mothman, and there's the quantum physics of the Shroud of Turin, uh, Nephilim conspiracies to enslave us. Uh, School districts aren't looking for teachers well-versed in such such subjects. Will tonight's topic of the Shakespeare authorship controversy make me a gooder English teacher candidate, or should I just keep Nightlight as my only classroom? And BD, misshapen. Don't quit your day job, Mark. Don't quit your day job. Yeah. I, I think I'll just end up being the misshapen knave with the tinfoil helmet. But we will be working with uh, my beloved English lit topic uh, tonight, and we'll be challenging the traditional biography of Shakespeare. Um, There's some exciting news uh, coming from the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship Camp and Catherine Children author of Shakespeare Suppressed, is joining us to 
discuss their upcoming free webinar on October 2nd and 3rd. And if Catherine is not enough, we have Craig Ansel, one of the hosts from the Three Beards podcast, joining us uh, tonight. Uh, but uh, Barbara, Catherine, and I are three non-beards. So, hi, Craig. Hi, Catherine. Hey. How are you? Hi, tonight? Mark. Hi, Barbara. <laughs> Hi, Craig. <laughs> yeah. Hello, everybody. Uh, Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah. As, yeah, uh, yeah. The Three Beards had Catherine as a guest a few weeks ago, uh, about a month ago, so, so ago, and I told Craig, oh, hey, uh, hey Catherine's going to be a guest with us, and, uh, and you want to talk m- more about this authorship controversy and he, he jumped at the chance so you know just br- bringing him on to uh you know, he, he was just fascinated by the su- subject so you know, let's keep the conversation going and um uh, so you know before uh you know craig before we get uh you know uh really uh you know, delving into um, you know, this upcoming webinar and some of these other uh, uh, authorship mi- mysteries. Um, you know, can, can you tell us a little bit about the Three Beards podcast? Um, you know, it's fun, relaxed atmosphere. Uh, you know, who, who are your co-hosts? Uh, you know, t- tell us a little bit about the show. Oh, I'd love to. Yeah, thanks for um, giving me the opportunity. Thank you, Barbara. And Catherine, a pleasure talking to you again. We really was looking forward to this. Um, Three Beards Podcast, we were based here in Central Florida in a town called Winter Garden. And it was just three guys. We just, um, my co-hosts, Chris Harmon and Austin Burke, um, we just kind of a mutual love of just talking about just random subjects. And we just hit on it, decided to kick off a podcast, and we did a lot of stuff with sports in the beginning, and then we kind of wanted to dabble in topics. And without going too long here, we hit on, we lucky hit on a guy named Max Hawthorne, author of Kronos Rising series. Mm-hmm. And we interviewed him, and he just happened to be a really good friend with Mark. And it led to here we are where we've interviewed people. I mean, when we started this out there, I couldn't have envisioned a scenario where I would have been talking to Catherine children about Shakespeare suppressed. And then we were and it was fascinating for me because it was, it was one that it even shocked my sister that I was sitting here on a podcast talking about Shakespeare. (laughs) So it was, it, so it was a pleasant surprise, and I, I was actually it was it was amazing to me just how into the subject I was at that time, and it's hard to believe it's been you know July twenty seconds when we interviewed Catherine, and now here we are. It's like you know two months later. It's like man, this is crazy. <laughs> yeah, and you know, you're 
doing your show over uh, Facebook uh, live streaming. It seems like a lot of people are uh, going to that uh, format now. Uh, yeah, that that you know the sound and uh, uh, visuals are uh, great. It, 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 you have a really nice mini TV show going on. Uh, so, you know, if people want to watch it, uh, how do they uh, find you, can you on go Facebook? To face- yeah, Facebook uh, under Three Beards Podcast. Um, we have a page. Um, you just like that, and you'll get notifications, or you can go to YouTube, same thing, channel, Three Beards Podcast, and it enables people, because that, that was one of the things that we we liked about it, not only could we publish it via your, your standard podcast format, you know, we were able to bring some of Catherine's work to the screen, because now we could show pictures, we could show stuff that she was talking about, we were, we were able to bring mm-hmm. those things out, and that was that was a lot of fun. Yeah, I was, you guys did a nice production on that one. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Craig. It really was great. Okay. Well, I won't lie. I was nervous. <laughs> I, was, I like, I'm like, here we got a Shakespeare author coming on the show, and I'm, I'm, I'm like, I am just a, just a random bearded dude, and I'm gonna sit here. I go, she's gonna come on here. I'm gonna ask some dumb questions. I'm like, oh, I, I can't all. even tell you how nervous I was. But I'm glad you had a great time. Thank you. Of course. Thank you. Okay. Let, all right. Let, let, let's get in some new angles of the authorship uh, controversy. And, and, you know, it's a, a little uh, preface to to my question. Uh, does everyone remember that scene from uh, The Godfather when they're sitting in Vito's office and Michael asks uh, Tom, "Hey, hey, we have uh, newspaper people on the payroll." You know, Tom nodded. Yep. So, yeah, you know the Corleones are uh, just distorting the truth, getting you know their version of the story out. Uh, so, anyhow, you know there was that awkward moment. Uh, last week on one of Nightlight's competing stations that suggested some anchors uh, could be on the payroll of a uh, enemy of the state. Uh, so, and that sh- should be verboten. But uh, we had that recent example, but that goes you know, way back in time, or, or since there's ever been printing, uh, be, you know, being done, and it, the Shakespeare authorship controversy was not unscathed by such a scandal. Um, so, Catherine, in your uh, Shakespeare's suppressed. You, know, you state the uh, preface to the first folio was designed to mislead. So, so it seems like there had to be someone behind the scenes saying, "Okay, here's what we want to, how we want to shape the 
image of this author. And you know, you're saying the, uh, you know, you, you present information about who you believe was, well, and you know, there is evidence as well. But who were the people behind the uh, creation of the first folio? Yes, uh, it's very true. You said, uh, I think Shakespeare was a victim of, a very early victim of propaganda. And the Mm -hmm. propaganda appeared in the form of a book of Shakespeare's complete play, or 36 of Shakespeare's play. Today we call it the first folio. And it was in these opening pages where the idea of who Shakespeare was was really created. And um, it attempted to throw the authorship on a humble, humbly born man from a small town of Stratford-on-Avon, um, which nobody associated with uh, the great author prior to that. Um, the great author was uh, described by contemporaries uh, as totally different, as someone who was someone of high rank, who wrote anonymously or with a pen name, who who wrote decades earlier than it is believed uh, by scholars today, that he was a generous patron, uh, that he was well-known to university students. Um, This was what was known about him prior to the folio publication. the great author, in my opinion, was, was the 17th Earl of Oxford, and he died in 1604. And the Stratford man, um, who was born with the name William Shakespeare, actually Shakespeare, um, he died in 1616. And it was seven years after that that this huge book um, of over 900 pages was printed. And... Um, Right off the bat, when you look at the front page, you can see um, how the misinformation is being um, conveyed. And uh, the very first thing is by saying on the title page that these were the true original copies uh, of the Shakespeare plays. And that is totally incorrect. Um, The plays were imperfect. the ones that were featured in the first folio. And actually, some of the text given um, was from previously printed plays of Shakespeare, individual plays, that were in terrible condition. (laughs) So um, right off the bat, you have a lie. Um, uh, uh, Secondly, you have these letters written by two actors, uh, one John Hemmings and the other Henry Condell. And... um, they uh, purport that Shakespeare was their friend and fellow and that he was this natural genius and that he was a servant of uh, two earls, the earls that uh, the folio book was dedicated to. Um, There's no evidence for these points. And, in fact, that letter dedication letter and the letter to the reader, which were both signed by these two actors, were actually written by Ben Johnson, who 
was also a contributor to the opening pages of the professful of the first folio. So that puts uh, it, it taints the entire production. There's something odd going on, mm-hmm. and um, so if you look further into the book, this was a very large book, a large page size, which is called a folio size. And over 900 pages, this is an extremely expensive production. Um, Some estimates are around 300 pounds. It could be more. Um, Now, keep in mind today that might sound not a lot, um, but back then it was a huge amount. Um, When you think that like an average laborer of the time earned two pounds a year, you know, or someone who was a little more educated, maybe 20 pounds a year. And this this costs at least 300 pounds. So you have to put it all in context. So it certainly was not these two actors who, the, who pur- purportedly uh, put this together. Um, it had to have been somebody with somebody of wealth. Now, if you look on the back page of this book, you will see that it, it names printed at the charges of and four names um, William Jaggard and a few other people. But even then, um, between those four people, again, it was a huge investment, and we know approximately what people paid for this book. And if you take into the high cost of producing it and a relatively low figure um, that they would be getting back, there was almost no profit. So that puts it very likely that this book was produced by the two earls that it was dedicated to, the Earl of Pembroke and his brother, the Earl of Montgomery. And the Earl of Pembroke was one of the richest men in England. His mother was uh, Mary Sidney, who was a a renowned uh, writer of of the period um, and also a patron of other writers. So he was from a literary family, so it would make sense. Um, But he also, uh, being probably the, the major contributor to this work, it would also mean that he would have some say in the production. That makes sense. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I think, you know, the information from your Chapter 9 is something we haven't uh, covered while you've been a guest. And, you know, I thought, okay, uh, it's relevant to um, some things that are going on today uh, about you know some of the behind the scenes people, and it, you know I was looking at uh, you know, get, getting a lot of information from you know your pages one fifty seven, one fifty eight, uh, you know the, uh, Earl of Pembroke. And you know, got, got out my um, Wilton House 
souvenir guidebook. And yeah, it says you know, right there um, on page two, the on the uh, intro, introduction to the uh, tour of the house. It says uh, Philip Sidney wrote his Arcadia, dedicated it to his sister while staying at Wilton. Uh, you know that's. Uh, his mom was, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and his mom was uh, uh, someone you just mentioned. Then it says, and if tradition can be believed, Shakespeare and his company of players gave the first performance of Twelfth Night and As You Like It at Wilton. And, and I remember uh, you know, on the tour, you know, uh, I don't know, what walk in or uh, it was uh, about when you're ready to leave. Is a statue by one of the doorways, uh, and th- th- they do have a a statue of Shakespeare, and he is pointing at that um, out out brief candle from Macbeth. Uh, passage. It's you know, life's but a walking sh- shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. It's right there. Yeah, it's like uh, okay, I had seen that frontline video before I. Uh, about a year before I made that trip, and I saw it, and I was like, I, "It's in, interesting." Okay, you get this Shakespeare connection, and uh, yeah, it, it's not really proving anything, but it gives you, yeah, something. It, it's it it makes you think. I don't. Is I don't. Know, it, it, I, I just thought it was really interesting. There's it just not conclusive proof there, but you know, that that line from Macbeth does seem uh, pretty similar to oh, uh, was it like uh, Sonnet? Was it seventy six? My wrong page. Yeah, it's like my name be buried. Uh, Seventy-two. I'm sorry. Um, my name be buried where my body is. Um, uh, signifying nothing. Uh, um, yeah. E- 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 right. Right. Which uh, could be a nothing. Could be a, a, a an O, and that could be Oxford. Okay. Well, yeah, it it, it it it's just interesting that the Earl of same, Oxford. you know, with the stat, uh, the the statue of Shakespeare with his finger just kind of, uh, like pointing that passage out, kind of goes back to some of the uh, sonnets written. Uh, uh, you know, if you follow the traditional 
biography, uh, what, 20-some, 25 years earlier. It, it, it just seems like there was this, like a, like a fatalistic view that what I'm doing just, uh, it's fine for the moment, but it's not going to amount to anything. Yes, I yes, and you're right. Uh, it is reflected in some of the sonnets, and I think that he knew that his his name would be not associated with um, his masterpieces. And I think, of course, um, it it probably you know really hurt him deeply. Um, yeah. But he he may have done it for a higher cause, which you know, we can maybe get into. A little later, but um, Wilton okay. is interesting, and definitely because they're Herbert brothers, so they're Earls of Pembroke and Montgomery. Uh, they are directly uh, responsible for us having the play that you quoted, Macbeth, which was not previously printed. Twenty yep. Shakespeare plays appeared in the first folio, and that was a tremendous. We owe them a tremendous debt, so we're totally grateful that they reprinted these plays. Otherwise, they they would have been lost. I mean, that's more than likely because we don't know where the original play manuscripts are. So on one hand, we have to be very grateful to these brother earls, um, but they were also the ones who put forth the idea, hinted, that the Stratford man was really the great author. So, you know, it's, uh, you have mixed feelings about it. <laughs> um, but yeah. interestingly, the Earl of Montgomery was married to Oxford's youngest daughter, Susan. So there's another connection right oh. there between the true author and one of the people that the book was dedicated to. Interesting. And, and you know, I asked, and you know, when we were doing some show prep, I said, you know, there's, I was looking through, you know, this souvenir guidebook, and I said, oh, yeah, there's, you know, the family painting is in the double, uh, the the room that's called the double cube room, and. Uh, that room was featured in a couple scenes from Kubrick's uh, Barry Lyndon. There's like Barry and uh, his his son Brian were sitting on the long couch under this huge painting, and and then you get a few exterior shots. I think when you know, Brian's birthday party and there's a little Shetland ponies. Character. Oh yeah, you know, it was yeah th- that was. That's the exterior of uh, that house, uh, the Wilton House. It's and you you said, "Oh, okay." You know, there's like a Oxford connection would be in that painting. Oh, wow! Cool. um, Yeah, that it's a very large painting, and there are the children of the Earl of Montgomery, uh, of course. By Oxford's daughter, um, Susan Susan Beer. They had several children, I think, five, six, or seven uh, children. And so, really, 
in that painting, you're looking at Shakespeare's grandchildren, you know, which is very interesting. And also, um, interesting research has been done about the the lady. It's uh, the Earl of Montgomery and his wife. Now, they, they always say that it was his second wife that's being depicted there, but actually um, research shows by Bonner Cutting that it may very well have been his first wife, Susan, who had passed away when the painting was done. And um, one indication would be her arms being folded um, is symbolic for somebody who has passed away. Um, so it's kind of an intriguing picture. Hmm. Okay, I, yeah, that was, uh, you know, I was you know, just trying to c- come up with some n- new questions. I, I, yeah, the ch- chapter nine in, in your book just kind of like w- reminded me of all this stuff from, you know, my little uh, day, day trip to Wilton House and actually getting to be uh, – in the same room where, uh, you know, Kubrick filmed a uh, couple scenes, and I think you get another scene at the end where uh, Barry and Lady Linden were uh, writing more and more checks to pay all their debts. It was uh, that was a really cool experience. Okay, I'm I'm getting close to being done with. <laughs> this, this trip down memory lane. Uh, that was a great film, by the way. One of my favorites. Oh, it, it, it's actually you know most so people. So beautifully shot. Oh yeah, uh, you know most people uh, kind of overlook it. You know, like right after you know 2001, Clockwork Orange, and then everyone wants to like watch The Shining, and they, they kind of forget Barry Lyndon. But it, it's actually a wonderful movie. Okay, uh, uh, Craig, do you have a question? Question? No. Yeah. You, no, I was, you, I'm, I'm sitting back. Here, I'm, I'm, I'm stopping back here, realizing I'm, I'm actually getting, you know, taking my nice school lesson right now because I'm, I'm being educated as we go because there's a lot of stuff. As I'm listening to it, I'm like, wow, I didn't know that. Either. I'm like, as Catherine, you were describing it. I'm sitting here ripping off pieces of notebook paper and shoving it inside the book and dog-earing <laughs> things so that way I know where to go back to and read. But, well, you know, this is it's a mystery, but it's historical. It's it's not, you know, literary criticism of a Shakespeare play. It is about the facts about the man. And once you see how few there are, you know, it it, it you want more. You want to understand more and it it gets very addicting. <laughs> it's uh, was, addicted me for over 30 years. Yeah. Yeah, and there's the one, and I don't know if you remember, I emailed you that question, you know, kind of a quick one. Um, it was a gentleman on YouTube. He goes by Bastion Conrad, but he he posed a question, you know, to me. I didn't know the answer to it. He wanted to know why, in our episode, why we did not even touch on Christopher Marlowe, Kit Marlowe, as in the discussion. And I told him that, next chance I talked to you that I, I would definitely ask. It's like, what was it about him that was the deciding factor where you, you just can't and said, okay, I'm not looking at him. Well, um, the quality of Shakespeare's plays and the quality of 
uh, Marlowe's place. To me, they're they're two, they're two different uh, objects, you know. Um, and Marlowe uh, died when he was barely thirty. He was just about to th- turn thirty. And there's about thirty six plays. Um, some say a lot more, like uh, Ramon Jimenez. Uh, he wrote uh, a book called Shakespeare's Apprenticeship, which um, takes into account early versions of similar plays to Shakespeare, which really may have been by Shakespeare, not by some mysterious person. So it could be as high as 50 plays. So if you want to get 50 high-quality dramas um, out of a 30-year-old, it, it doesn't quite compute. You know, I, it, You would have to believe that he did not die, even though we have a, like a coroner's account of, of his murder in a inn, I believe, in an inn. Um, you'd have to believe that he didn't die, that it was all a ruse, and that he went to Europe and wrote plays and then somehow sent them back. So to me, it, it, it gets less and less likely. Um, and I just don't think that he was a, of the same writing caliber as, as the great author. So that's why. Um, some people think he, he wrote it um, uh, before, before Marlowe. It was Bacon, Francis Sir Francis Bacon, um, from about the 18, mid-1800s up until our theory was, or our man was founded uh, by uh, J. Thomas Loney, 1920. Um, he was the candidate. Bacon was the candidate. And it made sense in, in some ways because he was so well-educated. And you can see that same level of education, you can see it in the Shakespeare plays. But Bacon um, had a, a huge body of philo- philosophical works and, and works of science. And it again, it's not likely that he would have been able to encompass the huge Shakespeare canon plus what, what he achieved on his own. So I think all the evidence points to the Earl of Oxford, especially life parallels. There's so many. And um, especially in the character of Hamlet, who was a nobleman, a courtier, a traveler. Um, he killed somebody. Um, these are all characteristics of the Earl of Oxford. And a great one, which I always bring up, when he Oxford took his grand tour of Europe and on his way home, he's crossing the English Channel from France. And his ship gets attacked by pirates, which is just what happened to uh, Hamlet. The same thing. So he he more than likely was telling his own story in that in that case. And there's uh, m- even more ties. Uh, Polonius is believed to be that's a character in Hamlet. Is is believed to have been a portrayal of Lord Burley, who was Cyril of Oxford's father-in-law. So, you know, the parallels kind of just keep adding up. And that's just one play. And, of course, if you look at the sonnets, which were the most autobiographical, um, you see things that are applicable to the Earl of Oxford. Like, for example, the dark lady in Shakespeare's sonnets. He talks about this dark-haired lady, a beauty, that he was obsessed with. And, um, well, the same thing was true of the Earl of Oxford. 
he had an extramarital affair with Anne Vavazor. Um, they had a child together. And consequently, Queen Elizabeth threw them both in the tower along with a baby. <laughs> so, you know, you have <laughs> parallel after parallel. It just keeps going, going, going. Um, now, that was so much more eloquently done than my I don't know. I'm just going to tell you this. When I responded, it's like, I, I don't know. Yeah, you, you you said it so much better. I, I wish you could have been there to respond for him. Yeah. yeah, that's, yeah. Well, maybe he's be, listening. Um, Who knows? Yeah, I, I can only hope because I'm, I'm like, because at least I did what I promised. I got an answer from the author. You can, so, you can send him the I, archives tomorrow. That's all I'll have to do. I'll have to send the leak to it. It's like, say, it's like, see, I kept my promise. I found an answer for you. Yeah. But one thing we all share, whether it's Baconians or Marlovians or Oxfordians, we all believe the great author was not the Stratford man. So once you get rid of the Stratford man, then then you have to look at the works. And and that's what the method of uh, J. Thomas Loney, who, who discovered the Earl of Oxford. Uh, he made a list of characteristics of, you know, what this man was like what he knew that he was unconventional that he he had a classical education that he was a, a recognized poet that he had interest in Italy and sports and music he, you know he made all these characteristics and after everything it fit the Earl of Oxford like a glove and that was his great discovery and it it's a really great book and um, called Shakespeare Identified. Um, he, he's very methodical, rational, logical, and he he just comes to amazing conclusions. And uh, so we're it's been a hundred years, and we're celebrating it this year. Yeah, and it was kind of a follow. It was a little bit of a follow up to the discussion you and Mark had just a little bit ago when you were talking about the first folio. As I was looking, that was right in the beginning, second paragraph there in chapter nine, or it was. When you looked at just for the time period, 907 pages for this first folio, just the cost that was in, would be involved in in producing all those copies to give out there. I mean, that's that's a pretty hefty undertaking, especially in that time period. Yes, I was, and I was what, I was what was shocked. paid for it was so you know small compared to the investment that. It was really not a money-making venture, in my opinion. So, you know, therefore, somebody who had money, like Daryl Pembroke, who the book was dedicated to, he had to have had, you know, contributed in, in a big way. And also, if you look at the other people who are mentioned in these opening preface pages, you, you have short poems by James Mab and Hugh Holland and. Johnson and Leonard Dix, these people, these people were not playwrights. They were not poets, really. Um, you know, they wrote some verses, but they were not professionals. So um, why were they used for the task, uh, you know, to do this? Why not celebrated poets uh, and playwrights of the time? Well, only Ben Johnson was the one. Um, ben Johnson was... Uh, the protege of the Earl of Pembroke. I mean, the Earl of Pembroke, you know, sponsored him from 1605 onward. Uh, the Earl of Pembroke was responsible for Ben Johnson to get a, a an annuity of 66 pounds a year. 
So he was very much Ben Johnson beholden to Pembroke. And you can see that he had the dominating hand in, in these opening pages. So I think they worked together to, to create this, you know, fake story about the author's, true author's identity, which was, you know, totally misleading. And also, uh, those other men were in some way connected to either Pembroke or Montgomery, including uh, the person who did that engraving on, you know, that we're all that we all know that black and white engraving. There may have been a connection there with uh, the Earl of Montgomery, which I you know give in the book. So it seems to be a, you know, a Pembroke and Johnson production, which is the title of that chapter. <laughs> and, um, what? And I really like the, you know, shouldn't like us too. I really love the images that you've added among men inside the book too, because not only it saves you the Google searches of having to search up some of the things too. It's just it's like, bam, it was right there. I can look at it and I can actually read it. And I really appreciate you putting those in the book. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's um, it took me seven years, and it it is it's the book that I wish I had when I first was exposed to this topic many many years ago, <laughs> and I finally did it. Um, so I yeah, tried yeah, to make it as job. understandable as possible. It it is a complicated topic. And, oh yeah, uh, lot, a lot to know. Craig, you always like that uh, uh, sack of grain guy for the original outline of how the monument was to be designed. What none of that has anything to do with writing. Uh, you know, when we first started what discussing this, Bill you're like, I, sack. yeah, uh, what does what does any of that have to do with uh, uh, you know the local boy uh, who made it big in uh, London as a writer? Uh, there's no uh, the little cherubs with the shovels and hourglass uh, really doesn't indicate that. Uh, th- this monument is for an author. I, I, yeah, you said j- j- just sat there and like punched holes through it. Uh, <laughs> once you started looking at this, was the original draft. Yes, if you look at the original documentary evidence of what the monument in the Stratford on Avon church really looked like, uh, it's very different from what's there today. And I give evidence showing that it was probably changed uh, around 1650, right around there. Um, I think it it may have been damaged in the English Civil Wars in the 1640s, and they, the town probably rebuilt it to make it look more like an author instead of a man holding a sack of wool, maybe. <laughs> So uh, they wouldn't have the maybe visitors saying, "Where is the Shakespeare <laughs> monument?" And maybe they came up with this guy with an upturned mustache holding a pen and paper. You know, 
but it was not the original. The original was a man with a downturned mustache, full beard, holding a sack of some sort. And that's not that wasn't the only change. That there were structural changes too. Like for example, there were um, leopard heads, a, a leopard, the face of a leopard, on the original monument, which is n- not in the current monument. And leopard head mm-hmm. was the symbol for the town of Stratford-on-Avon. So, if you are were some sort of official for the town. Um, you would have the right to have that on a monument. And, well, that was not true for the Stratford man, the William Shakespeare. He, he, his father was held in office in the town, but not his son. So that's why we think, uh, it was not my theory, it was uh, Richard Kennedy came up with this idea that it actually the mon- original monument was to John Shakespeare, the Stratford man's son. So, uh, so it just it just keeps going on and on. Every every aspect of this topic has some odd mystery attached to it. <laughs> I'm I'm one for symbolism, and if you look at that the juxtaposition between the two, the stained glass window behind it. Has anybody ever thought of the symbolism of the fact that there's a sacrifice going behind the picture? You know, the monument to Shakespeare. Oh, is so there? The, yeah, there's some sort of sacrifice. There, yeah, there's a bull on an altar being being burned while you have four figures. One is holding a sword or a dagger. I never noticed that. In the in the color Very copy, good. That's why, you know, because there's always. I'm one. I always pick up on the symbolism. I'm wondering if was that something that was planned, or was that just something that happened to be by coincidence that. You would have an image of a sacrifice, a uh, Stratford man being given forth as, you know, that this isn't, at, you know, that there's something else being done. Uh, yeah, so I was just curious if you'd ever thought, caught on to that. Craig, you know, Very interesting. Craig, uh, can, can I interject here? Because the sword and the bowl also is significant of an initiation of some sort. Mm. Oh, there you go. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So I was just curious if anybody else had caught on that because I just, no, I just noticed that as that's you the first were talking. Time I heard I of it. Very interesting. Very good. Good observation. Um, to my knowledge, the stained glass windows were added in the 19th century, but you know, it they still may have known something that they wanted to. You know, the town. That's a very interesting thing. Yeah, I'll have to look into that. Yeah, the Earl of Oxford sacrificed his love, his notoriety. Yes. To give way for the Stratford man to take that. Yeah, I don't know. I just it, just one of those the symbolism, and that's you know, just like Barbara said, you know, it's also the thing of initiation. That's that's pretty. Yeah, so it's, that's cool. It fits. Yes, very good. Craig, you want to keep going or? No, I, I just, I'm just sorry. I just, it was inter- just as we were listening, I just, before I forgot about it, I wanted to bring it up and just like, okay, sorry. I want to interject real quick. I just discouraged. I want to see if anybody else noticed this. Yeah. Cool. No, I'll, I'll stop it. interrupting. Good. Yeah. 
That's great. Hopefully after the show, everyone goes to uh, look at the monument uh, uh, on uh, uh, Google it and hopefully the stained glass window will be be there. uh, Thanks for bringing that uh, to our attention. A great place to go would be shakespearesuppressed.com and purchase a book. Yeah. That picture. There you go. <laughs> that would be a fantastic place to go. <laughs> okay, and uh, uh, yeah, Catherine, you, you, know, you bring up uh, you know from 1564 to 1584. <clears throat> uh, we don't have any uh, school records from uh, Shakespeare. Then we go from 1585 to 1592 that are considered the lost years. Yeah. And write a little bit in uh, Shakespeare Suppressed about uh, Venus and Adonis uh, that, you know, what came came out like 1593. <clears throat> so he, so Shakespeare just suddenly appears on the scene out of you know with no education. Writes this. Uh, you know, even my uh, college uh, you know, Shakespeare books that you know very well respected. Uh, poems, you know, probably what Shakespeare is best known for during his lifetime. So, was this? Do you, do you think this was like a beginner's luck type situation, or was was there a lot more writing going on? Much earlier and you know like kind of working uh you know Craig's question about uh Christopher Marlowe uh and he said you know he only lived to be 30 um and you know he, he was still you know he he was good good at what he did but he he wasn't the the leading uh playwright of, of the time uh no, he he didn't have the life experience yet, and you know it's something we can talk about in a little bit. But um, with the uh, poem Venus and Adonis, um, you know, what do? Would you attribute this uh, poem's success to someone who had been practicing uh, honing his craft for a lot longer than the traditional uh, Shakespeare biography tells us? Yeah, they they you know they go by what uh, the author wrote in his dedication that it was the first heir of his invention, meaning 
his first creative work, but that doesn't make sense because this is a highly sophisticated poem. Um, a sophisticated rhyme scheme is used. Um, very erotic. Um, it, it was a huge bestseller. Um, it, it's very unlikely that it was the a poem of this caliber would be the first thing he ever wrote. It's very unlikely. But there's a better explanation for him saying it's the first air of my invention. It's the invention is not the poem. It's his pen name of William Shakespeare because on this poem, Venus is Honest, it's the very first time that the name William Shakespeare appeared in print. That was 1593. So um, the first heir of the the pen name is Venus and Adonis. So that to me is much makes a lot more sense. And um, and this was followed by another very popular poem, the Rape of Lucrece. Uh, the, the the year after, which was also hugely popular, and uh, I, I'd say most students or 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 people who've looked into the plays or uh, don't know a lot about these two poems, but they were enormously popular in Shakespeare's time, and most of the comments were about those two two poems, and and less so for the plays. Um, the world only learned that he was a playwright um, about five years later in 1598 when someone wrote a book of literary criticism and he wrote down Shakespeare play titles, about 12 of them. So uh, that was really the first time in print that people knew that this William, quote-unquote William Shakespeare was also a playwright. So that's a, yeah, it's... Um, all you have to do is just look at what people wrote about the great author while he was alive, and uh, it's a different picture than what uh, scholars today still to this day still they still go by the line that he was barely educated and just came out of nowhere in fifteen ninety three just perfectly formed and um I mean, we even have two writers of the period um, making reference that this name was a pen name. They didn't say so directly. It's in, it's in Shakespeare's Suppress. They didn't say so directly. Um, like for one of them, Gabriel Harvey, he, he, he said that um, he was geared, that in, in essence he was saying that Shakespeare was his armor, the pen name. Hmm. So, you know, if you read these contemporary accounts, you can see that they were telling the world that Shakespeare was a nobleman and that he was using a pen name. You just have to read them in the, to them a little bit deeper than you would on the surface. And why would we have to do that? Why didn't they just openly say so? Because he was a nobleman. He was a nobleman who didn't want recognition in his lifetime because uh, being deeply involved in, in poetry and playwriting was considered, you know, frivolous. It's not something a nobleman is supposed to do. He's supposed to be doing more serious matters like, uh, you know, being in the military or being a counselor to the queen. And so during his lifetime, he didn't want it to be known. So they were trying to be careful 
on his own behalf. But after his death, that is when he should have gotten credit, and he didn't. And that is the great, the great issue here. Why didn't he get credit? And on top of it, why did they want to throw it on the Stratford man? And that brings us back to the Earl of Pembroke, you know, uh, the wealthy man who constructed this whole whole concept through Ben Johnson. <laughs> uh, this is it just keeps getting more fascinating, uh, Craig. What do you think? Oh no, you, it's, it's definitely it's. I'm. It's. I won't. I. I honestly feel like I'm sitting in a lecture, right now. Just you know, I'm taking notes as we're going along, and it's. it's you know, I. Well, you know, this is I'm something a, that uh, you know, English professors should be discussing, but they don't want to discuss it. They're just happy with the traditional story. They don't want to upset the the apple cart, and you know, I. If you really care about the great author who, of Hamlet and Macbeth and all these wonderful plays, you should do at least that much to look into it. You'll look at their own evidence. And what it comes down to is that it's an unproven theory that the Stratford men wrote the works. You know? Why don't you prove your theory? For for us, it's not a conspiracy. It's it's a it's a conspiracy that's a fact. It was a factual conspiracy. All the evidence lines up to that. Um, but no evidence connects the great author to the Strafferman other than this piece of propaganda, the opening pages of the first folio. Okay. Uh, yeah. Ka- Catherine, uh, since you, know, you and Craig just mentioned uh, professors and lectures um, you know, you when know, you spend uh, a little bit of time talking about the <clears throat> uh, Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship webinar uh, coming up October 2nd and 3rd and you know, the speakers are not yeah, just talking about uh, the man from Stratford did not write the plays and sonnets, and there's no documentation that uh, shows that he he couldn't have written the play. Uh, yeah, what your group uh, does is far more than that. You have a lot of diligent researchers and insightful lecturers, uh, Covering a, a wide range of topics, um, okay. This is a free webinar, so uh, that's good. People can watch it in the safety of their own homes. You don't have to get out of your pajamas. Just go to the computer and sit there all day and watch some captivating um, presenters. Yes, and some of them have been pre-recorded, and um, some of them, including me, will be streamed live. Um, And so we really hope everybody will register. It's free. You can register online. Uh, You just go to shakespeareoxfordfellowship.org and um, put in your email 
and um, you, you can get all the information necessary and um, watch some very interesting lectures. Um, mm-hmm. We're we're a very diverse crowd. Like for for example, the first speaker is uh, Dr. Earl Showerman. He's a he was an, a retired uh, emergency doctor, emergency room doctor, and he's gonna his topic is Shakespeare and politics from the 16th to the 21st centuries. Um, we have James Warren who put out a new edition of. J. Thomas Loney's book, uh, Shakespeare Identified, and he, he talks about um, the book and the uh, how, how his book was received, and he has tracked down hundreds of letters and things like that uh, by Thomas Loney. And we have uh, Stephen Sable, who is an actor, totally into this, and he's going to do a topic on the mentors to genius. He also uh, does a great podcast called Don't Quill the Messenger, which is sponsored by the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship. So he'll be there. Uh, Ramon Jimenez that you mentioned, he's going to do Mm -hmm. 10 eyewitnesses who saw nothing, meaning people who were literate, who knew the Stratford man, who never said anything any word of knowing that they knew the great author, William Shakespeare. So, you know, just by silence, um, it's telling us something. And I myself will be doing something on The Tempest, uh, the character Prospero, um, and a a parallel with an Italian man named Prospero Visconti, the parallels between those two characters. And with hints of the Earl of Oxford thrown in, too. So um, I hope everybody will uh, look look into it. Uh, that, Those are just a few. Like, it, 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 Catherine, your uh, presentation sounds interesting. Uh, yeah. it, uh, and you know, the Tempest is what traditionally viewed as beer's farewell play and uh that's where uh the play that has oh brave new world in it yes yes so many wonderful uh, lines and um yeah it it appears that the character was initially based on this italian gentleman who was a native of milan just like uh, Lord Prospero, he was the Duke of Milan. So I get into uh, those parallels. It's uh, very interesting, and it's a very, very, very possible that the Earl of Oxford met met this Prospero Visconti. And we even have uh, we have images of Prospero Visconti. So I think it will be a very enlightening talk. Hmm. Okay. And. and- that's a real possibility since um, the Earl of Oxford did uh, travel pretty extensively through Italy, and he he was in northern Italy as well. Um, yeah. The 
traditional uh, biography of Shakespeare says that he never left the country. So exactly. I'll, I'll be looking. Exactly. I'll yeah. be looking forward to seeing what he, what you come up with uh, you know, with this re, you know, contrasting uh, fictitious character with a historical person and. That hey, this is not of, an unusual thing. Um, Stratfordian, yeah. you know, regular Orthodox Shakespeare scholars have have looked for somebody that Shakespeare uh, based the character on. They they've been searching, and actually somebody found found it, but um, they rejected it, probably because because he had to have been in Italy to have even known of this person. So they always mm-hmm. have to stop short and say, nope, can't be him. <laughs> okay. Because he never, so, as far as they know, the Stratford man never went to Italy. And yet, if yeah. you look at play after play, you know, so many plays are set in Italy. Um, play after play have specific details that are incidental. You know, not something you'd pick up in a travel book um, that are, that occur. You have to be there to know and um, it's it's very evident that the writer of the plays went there and knew it very well. well. It, it, yeah, and, and Catherine, uh, what's uh, the the city? Uh, I think it was from Mark Anderson's book that has the cypress trees outside of the yeah the medieval city. Outside of, uh, like, the western wall of Verona. And that's that's what, that passage is in the opening lines of uh, Romeo and Juliet. Uh, This is just an incidental thing. But um, a wonderful scholar, uh, Richard Rowe, he, he picked up on these little incidental details and tried to prove that they were actually existed. And sure enough... You know, 400 years later, he goes to the Western Wall, and there are sycamore trees there. So that's that's a wonderful book called The Shakespeare Guide to Italy, uh, 2011. And he's, he has since passed away, but it was a wonderful effort that took him many decades. And it, it's a wonderful work. Oh, okay. Well, um, I don't know how... People could, you know, just say, uh, you know, this Oxford idea is a conspiracy theory, and you know, the the Stratfordian is that's the official story, and we're going to stick to it. I, it. But but there's all these deep, uh, like you said, uh, you know, with the uh, Shakespeare. Uh, in Italy book. I, I mean, that's a detail that I, I, so, someone has to be there to see. And, you know, Mark, uh, and Mark also covered that uh, painting on the ceiling, a fresco on the ceiling in one of the palace uh, palazzos. Uh, so yeah. Someone has to, and it's uh, accurately uh, written about in one of the longer poems, 
like someone had the the writer had to be there and there is no uh documented proof that Shakespeare ever left England yes in fact uh, yeah there were several paintings uh that the great author viewed in that were known in in Europe but there weren't images in England and like one for example was done by Titian and uh it's Venus and Adonis right which just so happened to be a Shakespeare poem and uh he made Titian the artist made he's a Venetian artist he made several versions of Venus and Adonis and of the five versions that he made um only one portrays Adonis with a hat, a hunting hat. And that is described in Shakespeare's poem. He's wearing a bonnet. So, uh, and other details show that he actually saw this particular version. And this particular version was with Titian until his death in 1576. And the Earl of Oxford was in Venice in 1575 and 1576. So, you know, again, you've got a lovely, perfect, perfect match of of mm-hmm. how, you know, the Earl of Oxford could have seen this, uh, could have acquired this information, but but not, of course, for the, the Strafford man. And the Strafford man never claimed to be the author. That's something that we can't forget. He and his family never claimed it. It was this book of propaganda well really is a wonderful book of shakespeare plays but just the opening 16 pages of, of was the propaganda and that uh, nobody has turned back and the powers that be just won't question it and okay. because yeah. the powers that be today will not question it it's up to people like me who are not connected to you know, a university or academia. Um, we're the only ones who can who can tell the world about it to people who okay. are interested. People like Craig. He he knew yeah. nothing of this, but once he heard about it, it 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 became you know something. Wow, really interesting. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And uh, I think so much more people would be interested in Shakespeare if they knew about this. If they, if they knew who the real author was and his incredible life that he had. I mean, we just barely touched the surface of the scandals and things that were surrounding him in his lifetime. Uh, it was quite a life, and you can see a lot of the life reflected in the plays, and you can gain better insight into them, and they make them more enjoyable. Well, I, can't, I, I brought that up a little bit with you as well about just for me, where, you know, how much better is, you know, is learning about these, you know, store, just all the songs, everything, when you actually have more of a, you know, context of who the author was, as opposed to just somebody that was just given credit. Now you have, you know, like when I brought up some of the lines from Hamlet, it makes, it, there's so much more depth to these, these things as you read them when you realize this is somebody that actually lived this story. Yes, yes. And it's 
it, everybody loses by not acknowledging the true author. Everybody, including the author himself, who was a victim of this propaganda. I don't think he ever would have believed. I think that he thought his works would just be anonymous. I don't think he thought that that it would be contrived to throw it on somebody who was born with a similar name to his pen name. I don't think he he would have believed that. <laughs> so hmm. it it is an injustice that really needs to to be remedied. Okay, and well, hopefully, um, hopefully you've made a good step towards that. Thank you, thank you. Yeah. It, it, oh, it, uh, Catherine. It, it, you know, the fellowship uh, website, uh, or, or you can get to the fellowship's YouTube channel through the fellowship uh, website. Yeah. Uh, I was watching one of the um, videos, and it happened to be on um, Alexander Pope's editing or involvement in uh, the editing, and and, you know, just went through uh, the Tempest. for some ideas, you know, to talk about, and you know, uh, Alexander Pope is credited with uh, some of the uh, corrections in, in the Tempest. Um, uh, was that uh, you, your friend uh, Bonner's? Uh, presentation where that was all, uh, about what a hundred years after you know, De Vere or Shakespeare died. Uh, Alexander Pope was it, like one of these people behind this uh, revising of the Shakespeare canon. I thought that was pretty interesting. I, you know, sorry, I didn't see that that talk. Oh, okay. But, I, I, yeah, but yeah, um, I, I think the relevant point is that the plays have been constantly edited over the centuries because we never have the originals. So, so many lines. There are right. hundreds of lines that they, to this day, scholars don't know really what was meant. Or, or if it was, you know, mistakenly heard and mistakenly written down. There's a lot of these instances, and um, I, in my opinion, we haven't really read the real Shakespeare plays because we haven't seen the originals. Um, and um, that's another reason why, if we are on the trail of the right man and the right author, we we might be able to find these missing plays. Where 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 are they? Um, it appears that the, the Earl of Pembroke and Montgomery, even though they were related to the Earl of Oxford, it appears they did not have his originals because the folio text is imperfect in many cases, in, in many instances. So, um, you know, where are the missing manuscripts? 
where are the Shakes the real Shakespeare plays? And that mm-hmm. gets me very excited uh, to the possibility that you know they're sitting buried somewhere in a wall or somewhere. Right. And, uh, Under that black curtains, not to move it. Millions of people or thousands of people trying to find it. Maybe we'll find it. But right now, there's just a very limited amount of researchers. What? Because because it's being held back. This issue. Yeah. So. No, it's it it really is a fascinating topic, and like I was saying with that. Alexander Pope and some of the people behind uh, some of the editing about a hundred years after um, the author died. Yeah, that was another angle that really um, captured my attention. And, you know, I. I know it's, it's starting to get uh, late for everyone. You know, we, you know, we're, we're running a little bit over time, but uh, you know, there, there, if people have really enjoyed uh, this, you know, the information that you've presented and you know, Craig's questions, uh, you know, they can go to attend the. Uh, webinar on October 2nd and 3rd here you and uh, Ramon Jimenez uh, he's been a guest with us and Saturday is what speakers all day so you know there's going to be many different angles of this mystery presented um, in, a, in a couple weekends and uh, Catherine can could you uh, give us the website again and explain how to register for the uh, to be able to watch it? And, uh, and we can start kind of uh, wrapping up the evening unless uh, anyone has any last-minute questions. Well, um, okay. Well, um, the uh, place to go for this webinar on October 2nd and 3rd is uh, ShakespeareOxfordFellowship.org. And um, if you look on the right side of the page, there's a little uh, red box saying Shakespeare Authorship Symposium. And you just open that, and there's a form. You just fill out, your, I think, your email address, and you submit it, and you'll get, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the information to how to attend and um we hope uh, you'll you'll take a look everyone will take a look and get more information on this topic and also you know another great website besides mine mine is uh, shakespearesuppress.com and you can buy the book through through me on the website or you can go to amazon and, and purchase it um and um Another great website is doubtaboutwill.org, which is, um, there's something that's called the Declaration of Reasonable Doubt, Reasonable Doubt About the Stratford Man as the Great Author. And it's a, it's a list of people who have read this declaration and signed it and their credentials. And you can see that they're very educated people in all dis- disciplines, 
uh, find a problem with the Stratford Man is the great author. And a lot of good information on that site as well. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, uh, no, can... I don't want to ask any more questions because my homework's already big enough as it is. No, I've got, I, I think I've got about 30 pieces of notebook paper in this book right now. So. Uh, we're uh, we're going to have to do this again, and uh, I want to get into the 10 letters at some point. But we, uh, we'll talk about that. It's, uh, I was captivated by that discussion as well. I, uh, I mean, just, just, dur- during all this not being able to go out of the house much, you know, sit, sit there and watch all these uh, videos, and I get you know these ideas. So that's what, I want to have you back to – we'll have to do the, keep keep doing this and covering – uh, introducing more material when yes i'd uh, love to appreciate yeah. you and uh and, and barbara for allowing us to to talk about this topic uh so many times we appreciate i appreciate your favor in that regard yeah uh, i it, it, i i'm i'm just captivated and so, so is craig and you know okay craig and come back for that whenever we schedule that show so so uh, um, so if everyone feels like they said their piece, you know, uh, we could probably uh, wrap this show. And I just want to thank everyone for being here uh, tonight. And Barbara, thank you for producing the show, and thank you to the listeners. And we have a bunch. You know, keep, keep checking BarbaraDeLong.com for. All the upcoming shows. We've got a whole bunch of uh, neat shows in the works. Uh, it's almost every day uh, now. And I was, you know, Catherine and Craig, thank you very much. And Barbara, you can shut down the show now. We'll see everyone next 